everyone, and welcome back to Curtain Call, a podcast where we talk about Broadway musicals and their depictions of gender. I am your host, Jamie Corder, and I am so glad you decided to join me again. Let's get this show on the road. Welcome to our last episode of Curtain Call ever. Well, maybe not ever, but for this project in particular. I seriously can't believe it's almost been two months of working on this podcast. The time went so quickly. I'll save my mushy send-off for the end of this episode, though. Before we jump into talking about our final two musicals, I want to talk a little bit about the two Broadway eras these shows came from. As I mentioned last week, I originally intended to have eight episodes in this series, our last two being dedicated to the modern and postmodern eras of Broadway. But due to time constraints, I've just smushed both of these time periods into this last episode. In our previous episode, we talked about Jonathan Larson's smash hit musical Rent, which I noted marked the end at the contemporary age of Broadway. From 1996 to 2015, the theater industry went through what scholars call the modern age of Broadway. Now, during the modern age, different types of musicals were emerging. For example, jukebox musicals took off. While jukebox musicals were somewhat popular prior to the 2000s, there was a surge in popularity when one of my favorite musicals, Mamma Mia, opened in 1999. Disney, at the time, was also becoming a massive part of not just Broadway, but New York City in general. Their first screen-to-stage adaptation was Beauty and the Beast in 1994, but three short years later, they opened The Lion King, which continues to run today. Speaking of screen-to-stage adaptations, this is where our first musical, The Color Purple, comes in. In the fall of 2019, I conducted research on Broadway musicals that were based on movies, and I found a dramatic spike occurred in the early 2000s. Of the 60 Broadway musicals nominated for Best Musical at the Tony Awards from 2000 to 2015, 25 were based on films. That's close to half of all new musical nominees, and The Color Purple was one of them. Before hitting the Broadway theater in 2005, The Color Purple was first a novel by Alice Walker, originally published in 1982, and then a film which opened shortly after in 1985. Since debuting, Walker's novel has been the frequent target of censors, mostly for its explicit content regarding violence. Despite showing up on many banned book lists across the country, The Color Purple won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1983, making Walker the first black woman to win the prize. The original Broadway production ran for three years, and in 2015, a revival featuring legendary actresses Cynthia Erivo, Danielle Brooks, who you might know as Tasty from Orange is the New Black, as well as the infamous Jennifer Hudson opened. This production won the 2016 Tony Award for Best Revival. The same year that the Color Purple revival opened, 2015 that is, the modern era of Broadway ended. Lin-Manuel Miranda's show-stopping musical Hamilton bookended this time period and began our current era, one that has yet to be named. One year into this postmodern era, another screen-to-stage adaptation hit theaters, Adrian Shelley's Waitress. Waitress, an indie film, was part of the 2007 Sundance Film Festival, and its premiere was bittersweet as Shelley, who also played Dawn in the film, was murdered on November 1st, 2006, less than three months before the event. A decade later, a stellar creative team, who I will talk more about later, transformed the movie into a hit Broadway musical. The original cast starred the sensational Jesse Mueller, known for originating the role of Carol King in Beautiful the Carol King Musical, Kimoko Glenn, who also starred in Orange is the New Black as Brooke, as well as Kiela Settle, who is most commonly known for her role as the bearded lady in 
in Disney's The Greatest Showman. Despite being produced a decade apart, The Color Purple and Waitress often show up in Broadway discourse together. To be quite honest, I thought I was like the creative genius of this century for pairing these shows together. But as I quickly learned while researching for this episode, I was not the only scholar or theater fan who found parallels between the two shows. As I briefly talked about last week, Waitress and The Color Purple share common themes, such as breaking down gender roles, finding self-empowerment through female relationships, and the harsh depiction of domestic abuse, all of which we will be discussing today. To start our last conversation for this season of Curtain Call, let's take a look at The Color Purple. I was first introduced to The Color Purple during my sophomore year of high school. My theater teacher suggested that the drama club take a field trip to go see the revival on Broadway, but I had absolutely no interest in going. Two short years later, in my senior AP literature class, we were asked to pick a novel to read and write a report on, and upon seeing the title on our list, I decided to see what the narrative was all about. Almost instantly, I regretted not seeing the revival just two years prior. I was absolutely captivated by the novel, and to this day, it's still one of my favorites. In terms of the musical, the story stays pretty true to Walker's original narrative, which I was happily surprised to hear. Sometimes producers and the creative teams of these film-to-theater adaptations like to, well, adapt the storyline to either fit the stage better or to appease the audience. Thankfully, this was not the case in The Color Purple. As with our last episode, our plot recap today will mostly come from the Wikipedia synopsis section, with a few minor tweaks from myself. So without further ado, here is The Color Purple. On a Sunday morning in 1909, 14-year-old Celie plays a clapping game with her younger sister, Nettie. At 14 years old, she has already had one child by her father, Alfonso, and is now pregnant with her second. While attending services with the other members of their rural Georgia community, Celie goes into labor and is dragged out of the church as the congregation quietly looks on. After Celie gives birth to a son, her father takes the child away and bluntly tells her he is going to get rid of it like he did the last one. Celie quietly says goodbye to her newborn and asks God for a sign. Four years later, local farmer and widower Albert Mr. Johnson approaches Alfonso and asks permission to marry one of his daughters. Alfonso agrees, offering him Celie instead of Nettie. Although the girls promise never to be separated, Celie goes with Mr. to save Nettie's dreams of becoming a teacher. The local church ladies cluck their approval, while Mr.'s field hands introduce Celie to a life of hard work. One day, Nettie arrives, explaining that she is tired of Alfonso's lecherous attentions and asks if she can stay with Mr. He agrees, but later attacks Nettie while she is walking home from school. She fights back, prompting Mr. to kick her out. Celie protests, but Mr. swears they will never see each other again. As she leaves Mr.'s property, Nettie promises to write Celie, but when she goes to the mailbox the next day, Mr. slams the mailbox shut, threatening to kill Celie if he ever sees her touch it. It is now 1920, and Mr. Son, Harpo, brings home Sophia, a strong-willed woman whom he later marries. When he complains that he is tired of Sophia bossing him around, Mr. and Celie tell him the only way to get her to listen is to beat her. Harpo attempts to do so, but ends up being beaten by Sophia himself. After confronting Celie, Sophia learns the extent of Mr.'s cruelty and tells Celie to stand up for herself before leaving home to spend time with her sisters. Harpo decides to turn his house into a juke joint and engages in an affair with a waitress named Squeak, 
who moves in with him. Sometime later, the community prepares for the arrival of jazz singer Suge Avery, who is revealed to be Mr.'s longtime lover. But when Suge arrives with her band, she is in such bad shape that Seely nurses her back to health in spite of local disapproval. While tailoring a dress for Suge's debut, Seely experiences feelings of warmth and tenderness for the first time. Suge, meanwhile, learns more about Seely's relationship with Mr. and encourages her to find her inner strength. That night at Harpo's Juke Joint, Suge brings down the house with a raucous blues number. Sophia arrives with her new boyfriend Buster and dances with Harpo, prompting Squeak to pick a fight with her. The fight eventually escalates into a bar brawl, encouraging Suge and Seely to escape. After returning to Mr.'s house, Suge and Seely explore their newfound relationship. Suge uncovers several letters for Seely that have come from Africa. Seely recognizes Nettie's handwriting and realizes that her sister is alive. While reading the letters that Mr. has hidden from her, Seely learns Nettie is in Africa and is living with the missionary family that adopted Seely's children. In 1932, Suge brings her lover Grady over for Easter. After learning the extent of Seely's anger towards God, Suge invites her to come to Memphis with her so that they can enjoy the simple joys of life. After sitting down to dinner, Seely tells Mr. that she is leaving and Squeak announces she is leaving as well. When Mr. refuses and tries to beat her, Seely stands firm and curses him. Harpo then invites Sophia to come back and live at the juke joint, reconciling with her in the process. Eventually, Mr. begins to feel the effect of Seely's curse. Harpo challenges his father to make things right after a bunch of terrible things happen to Mr., which force Mr. to try to understand the meaning of Seely's curse and the meaning of life. At Suge's Memphis home, Seely starts writing back to Nettie and discovers that she has a natural gift for making pants. After inheriting her childhood home, Seely starts a business and begins selling her designs. Meanwhile, Harpo and Sophia hit it off, and they learn that Mr. is having difficulty getting Nettie and the children to come to the United States. The three resolve to make a plan. Suge tells Seely she has fallen in love with a 19-year-old musician in her band and asks her permission to have one last fling with him. While walking home, Seely realizes she isn't destroyed by this, and for the first time, she feels a deep love for herself. This is like a pivotal moment in the book, the film, and the musical. In the stage production, Celie sings this powerful number called I'm Here, where she belts about how beautiful she is and how strong she's become, and uh, it's just a beautiful number. Several years later, while hosting a 4th of July picnic for the community, Seely hears a car horn and a familiar voice from her childhood. It is Nettie singing the clapping song they sang years ago. They both run to each other and hug, with Seely's children right behind them, all grown up. After learning that Mr. and Suge have made the reunion possible, Seely thanks them and God for reuniting her with her sister. I hope from that plot recap you can understand a little bit about why I love this novel and the musical so much. While sad in the beginning, it depicts strong African American women, something I feel like we rarely see in fictional narratives. This is where I'd like to start our conversation on gender in the color purple today, by discussing race and how racial discrimination can lead to gender discrimination. To begin our discussion today, I want to start by talking about intersectionality. Yes, it took until our last episode of Curtain Call to discuss this concept, but I didn't really think it was pertinent to any of our other musical discussions, so I thought I'd save it for this one. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the concept, it's normally discussed in a lot of gender classes. It's a very popular concept on college campuses in general, and it actually has a couple different meanings. Its original meaning is something completely different than what a lot of people discuss it or use it as today. So I'm going to give you the definition from just what I've found on the internet. 
According to the Oxford Languages, intersectionality is defined as the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping or interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. To define it in less academic terms, I've always interpreted intersectionality as the different ways that you identify yourself in regard to race, class, gender, sexuality, and how those social categories either help you in society or harm you in society. So, for example, in one of my classes, we talked about how, you know, each of us identify. And I identify personally as a white, middle-class, heterosexual cis woman who's technically disabled. I'm a type 1 diabetic. And I'm college educated. I'm the first in my family to go to college. That's a big part of who I am. All of these social identifiers are important to me as a person. Now, my different social identifiers afford me different privileges or disadvantages. For instance, as a heterosexual cis woman, I don't have to worry about, you know, my marriage rights being denied or fear that I will be attacked for showing physical affection toward my partner in public or fret about whether or not I can find a bathroom that accommodates my gender identity. These are all worries that people who don't fit into the societal norm of heterosexual cis. You know, on the other hand, though, I am a woman and that comes with a different set of issues. When I walk to my car at night, I'm scared of being assaulted. I've been catcalled repeatedly in public and I also constantly worry about living on my own in the future for fear that someone could be breaking into my house. You know, everybody has that fear, but as a single woman living in their own house, that fear is a little more heightened. And we talked about this In class, we talked about this in most of my gender classes, but particularly in my most recent class for this project, we talked about how we're intersectional human beings. And because we're intersectional human beings, these social identifiers can overlap and can cause increasing harm. For instance, someone who identifies as a black trans woman has three things working against her. You know, she's viewed as a minority because she's black, her gender identity doesn't conform to society's norms, and she's a woman. What I'm trying to say is that if you're presented with one of these forms of injustice, say racism, it's likely that another form of discrimination is also tied to it, like gender discrimination. And this is where we get into the color purple, where the color purple is set during the early 19 hundreds when racial issues continue to run rampant in the United States. We know that race is still an issue today. People are still being discriminated against today. But in the early 1900s, you're just coming off of the end of slavery. It's about 50 years since the end of slavery. But Jim Crow laws continue to segregate African-American citizens from white citizens. And, you know, these laws were implemented as a way to continue to control the African-American community. They were still being made to feel inferior like second-class citizens to white people. And because black men were feeling inferior to white men, within their own communities, they would try to reclaim that patriarchal power, particularly over the women in their lives. When researching for this episode of Curtain Call, I found this really interesting paper from this group of researchers at the University Putra, Malaysia. And I'm sorry in advance, I will probably mispronounce these researchers' names, um, but I'm trying my best. This paper is by Camelia Talbian Sadehi, Rosalie Talif, Wan Rosalizem, Wan Yaya, and Hardev Kaur. In their paper titled The Color Purple in Women's Time, they talk about this gender discrimination 
separation, this power imbalance between black men and black women. And they write, quote, as black men are in the margins of white society, black women are in the margins of the margins among black men and whites. In fact, black women are like white and black men's slaves. End quote. So you see how that intersectionality ties back to it. They're not only viewed as in society as a minority because they're black, but they're also, you know, in the margins of the margins for being women as well. And unfortunately, because of this racism that's happening in the United States, society is kind of encouraging black men to dominate the women in their lives, often suggesting that they resort to domestic violence in order to control them. And a reminder that this is not just toward their wives, but their daughters their sisters, their nieces, and other family members as well. And we see this come up in The Color Purple, particularly in the musical. We see it during a song called Hell No, which is where Sophia confronts Celie after Celie and Mr. suggest that Harpo, Sophia's husband, you know, use physical violence to control Sophia. And in the song, she says, quote, all my life I had to fight. I had to fight my daddy. I had to fight my brothers, my cousins, my uncles too. Girl child ain't safe in a family of men's sick and tired of how women still live like a slave. End quote. You see how that ties right back to the quote from the researchers before, you know, as a woman in the early 1900s, especially a black woman, you're not safe in your own family, which is very scary. You can't trust your husband. You can't even trust your own father. You know, we see that with Celie's father, which, uh, you know, I guess we'll, I'll jump right into that right now is Celie endures physical and emotional abuse from all of the men in her life. You know, your her father rapes her, takes her babies away, and then, you know, marries her off to another man, which, you know, back then it was still okay for, you know, your father to give you away to another man. I mean, go back to our conversation all the way back to The Fiddler on the Roof, where Tevya, you know, sets up the marriages for his daughters. And then once she's with Mr., he physically and sexually and verbally abuses her, and his children even mistreat her as well that's something that's kind of overlooked in the musical but in the book you learn that like mister's own children partake in the mistreatment of Celie the men in her life constantly mistreat her. She, you know, her sister got taken away from her. She doesn't have any relationships with anybody but, you know, her husband and his children. This is how she survives. It's like the only way that she knows how is to conform to this gender role. She must obey her father and then she must obey her husband. She must fit into these assigned gender roles of caretaker and mother and domestic and servant and slave, like we talked about. Basically, she has to put her head down, just power through it and be quiet so that she won't get beaten. And she's so used to being dominated by the male figures in her life that she's kind of internalized this misogyny. By its definition, internalized misogyny is when women subconsciously project sexist ideas onto other women and even onto themselves themselves and we see this when Harpo falls in love with the outspoken and defiant Sophia, and Celie advises him to beat her, as that is the only way she will listen to him. While this seems like harsh advice, you can't really blame Celie for suggesting it. She understands that abusing your wife is wrong, but it's all that she's ever known. She just, at that point, is like, well, that's how you're supposed to treat your wife. You know, women aren't supposed to be openly defiant and outspoken like Sophia, and the only way to suppress that is to physically hurt them them. 
And as a victim, Celie doesn't feel she can vocalize her dissatisfaction with her life or advocate for herself against Mr.'s abuse or ask for help from those around her. Society and the male characters she interacts with are constantly trying to silence her. And some argue that the narrative focuses on Celie's journey to finding her voice. But scholar Carla Kaplan argues that this isn't a journey to finding her voice. It's actually a journey to learn how to use her voice to advocate for herself. As Carla Kaplan states, quote, it is the process of developing that voice, orienting it toward her different audiences that is really at stake. Above all, Celie needs to learn to use her voice to resist oppression. She must be convinced that resistance and contestation are not incompatible with fulfillment and satisfaction, end quote. And how does Celie learn to use her voice to ultimately break free from her abusive husband and go after her true desires? Through building relationships with other women, which I think is so cool. If I could go on a mini tangent right now, I feel like our society is constantly trying to pit women against each other, whether it's through, you know, beauty standards or job opportunities or by what you physically own or have in life. We're constantly being told to either be jealous of other women or to hate or fear them in a way that so many friendships are ultimately broken up. And it's only gotten worse with the advent and popularization of social media, in my opinion. You know, it's just so much easier to troll when people don't know what you look like or what your life is. There's no repercussions to it. Despite it being 2021, I honestly don't think we see enough women supporting women. It's starting to get better, and I think positive portrayals like the little community that Celie, Suge, Sophia, and Squeak create will help facilitate more kindness among women. You know, while all four women help each other in different different ways and support each other in different ways. The story really focuses on the relationship between Suge and Celie. Prior to meeting Suge, Celie has her sister, but then her sister's taken away and, you know, she's friendly with Sophia. But then, you know, Sophia goes to live off with her sisters for a while. She has these, like, relationships with women, but it isn't until Suge comes that, like, another woman has a really profound influence on her. It's through this friendship and this relationship between Suge and Celie that Celie, you know, starts to become comfortable with herself. She starts to become self-aware of her wants, her dreams, her desires, and Suge helps her become comfortable and help her achieve those dreams. For instance, we see that because Celie has been kind of suppressing her sexual desires from like a young age, specifically because of the trauma that she went through with her father, it's difficult when you go through a sexual assault like that to then feel comfortable enough to express yourself sexually and she doesn't even know you know again it's the 1920s they're not talking about women's reproduction women's bodily autonomy you know like they like we do today so Celie isn't even aware of what the different parts of her body is she isn't you know she's never learned about herself intimately and she's repressed all of these sexual desires for so long and it really isn't until suge shows up that she kind of starts to explore her body a little bit more and you know learn about the different ways that she can gain pleasure from sexual interactions as well you know again it's at a time when women aren't supposed to feel empowered about sex they're not supposed to enjoy it they're not supposed to talk about it it's a taboo subject so when suge comes in and suge openly 
talks about sex there's a whole song in the musical called push the button which is very sexual i mean you can kind of get where i'm getting at with the innuendo there so when she shows up you know she kind of teaches celie about her own self and her own sexuality. And I want to bring up a quote from our researchers, Sadihi, Talif, Juan Yaya, and Kerr, who state, quote, Thus, in The Color Purple, a crucial moment in Celie's transformation comes when she perceives the beauty of her genitalia. Suge teaches Celie to enjoy herself, to know her body, and to appreciate her female productive organs. For the first time, she perceives her sexual desires with the hope of another woman. As a result of this repossession of her body, Celie is able to gain selfhood through spoken language. In fact, as she was forced to forget about rape, she was ignorant about her sexual organ as well. However, as soon as she knows her rep- productive organs, she becomes able to express her repressed desires as well, end quote. To me, this moment is like a little bit more than just regaining your power over your own body, regaining, you know, the knowledge of your own body, but it's like a kind of a pivotal moment for Celie herself. I, I don't really know how to put it into words. It's like now that she's knowledgeable about herself and she's a little more sure in herself, she has this like motivation maybe. She's more curious about pushing the boundaries of other things that she's been told not to do, told not to talk about or think about. She's been told all these years not to think about her sexual desires, not to associate good things with those, she kind of just suppresses the, all of that. So when Celie finally starts to get answers, she's like, well, damn, what else am I missing out on? It gives her this, like, opportunity, and Suge helps with this, where it's like, she's moving forward, she's going to go search for more answers. And, you know, this kind of ties into my next point of Suge helps Celie, you know, pursue her other passions. You know, her sexual desires are one thing, that's kind of the first step. Down the road, you have Celie, who is finally done with living under Mr.'s patriarchal thumb. And she says, I'm going to go live my life. I'm going to go pursue my passion of sewing. And Suge helps her with that. While we know that Celie is good at sewing, you know, we we heard her talking about tailoring Suge's dress for her debut at the juke joint. She's never used her passion or her skills for something for herself. But with Suge's help, you know, she's kind of giving Celie a little push to be like, you're really good at this. If this is what you want to do, go do it. And as our researchers said, as Sadehi, Talif, Wanyaya, and Kerr state, quote, now Celie stands on her own two feet and is on her way to making progress. She revolts against Mr.'s patriarchal ideology, fights for her freedom, follows her dreams of sewing, and makes progress through hard work. End quote. Just to remind everyone that at this time, you know, it's the late 1920s to early 1930s, defying your husband in pursuit of your own dreams was like unprecedented. Celie's actions are absolutely unheard of, but they do kind of mirror the independence and liberation that was being encouraged in the first women's movement at the time. And if you think about it, it kind of makes sense that Celie is making pants in particular. She could have sewn skirts, shirts, dresses. She's making pants. And I don't know if Walker did this consciously or subconsciously, but at the time, again, the 1920s, early 1930s, women were starting to wear pants and it was like this symbol of defiance against society's norms. Having Celie be really good at making pants is like kind of a nod to those ideals at the time. And again, I don't think 
that Celie would have been able to go after her dreams and her desires if it wasn't for Suge and Sophia and Squeak, particularly Suge. As the researchers say in their article, quote, through the relationships with other female characters, Celie is able to cast off the patriarchal dominance which silenced her all those years, end quote. And this kind of ties back to what we were talking about before, where Celie for so long was silenced. She couldn't speak out for herself. And it wasn't until she met these other women that she was finally learning how to use her voice against the the people who were wronging her in her life. You know, it's through these friendships that these women support one another through every personal endeavor, every troubling moment, every glorious triumph. Sure, they call each other out when they need to, but ultimately they're there for each other because they truly don't have anyone else to rely on or turn to. As Sadehi, Talif, Juan Yaya, and Kerr write, quote, in the color purple, women tolerate racism, sexism, and gender discrimination, but they unite with each other. Through sisterhood, women realize their talents, verbalize them, and follow them, end quote. And to me, this is the true message being portrayed in The Color Purple. The importance of female empowerment, especially within small communities and within friendships. Rather than tearing each other down, we're meant to lift one another up. And my God, look at what beautiful things can happen when we do that. Celie truly learned how to use her voice by banding with other women. And I think that is the most important takeaway from the book, the musical, the film, all of it. And, you know, this isn't the first time that we're seeing a female-centered cast with women who are really good friends with each other. You know, it didn't just poof come up in 2005 but luckily we're still seeing female-centered musicals with really good friendships being portrayed and that's where I want to get into our next musical Waitress. Now, if you've never seen The Waitress film, you will definitely not know what The Waitress musical is about, so I'm going to dive right into that right now, starting with Act 1. Jenna Hunterson is a waitress and expert pie baker at Joe's Diner in the American South. She regularly reimagines her difficult life situations into creative pies, such as Bury the Bullshit and Everything's Just Peachy Peachy Keen Pie. She begins another day at the diner with her boss, Cal, and waitresses Becky and Dawn. After she almost throws up, Becky and Dawn convince her to take a pregnancy test which, to Jenna's dismay, comes back positive due to a drunken night with her abusive husband, Earl. Earl comes to the diner and suggests that he may make Jenna quit and give up her passion for baking. Additionally, he takes the tips she's earned from working so far that day. She decides not to tell him about the pregnancy and recalls her late mother, who also found solace from an unhappy marriage in baking. At her OBGYN's office, Jenna is taunted by other happy pregnant women and meets Dr. Jim Pometer, a new doctor from Connecticut. Jenna explains she doesn't want her baby, but is going to keep it, and leaves Dr. Pometer with a mermaid marshmallow 
pie, which, despite the fact that he is off sugar, he eats and loves. Word of Jenna's pregnancy reaches Joe, the diner's curmudgeonly owner, who suggests she enter a local pie-baking contest with a large reward, which would allow her to leave her husband. Dawn, meanwhile, has turned to online dating, as she is tired of being single, but is terrified of what could happen. Jenna runs into Dr. Palmer at the bus stop. He compliments her pie, saying it could win contests and ribbons and things. Jenna arrives home to learn Earl has been fired from his job after being late one too many times. He berates her, and his anger almost turns physical until she confesses that she is pregnant. Earl makes her promise not to love the baby more than she loves him. Jenna tells Dawn and Becky her plan to enter the pie contest and use the winnings to leave Earl for a new life with the baby. The three waitresses see their dreams of a better life just within reach, and the number a soft place to land. Jenna begins to give Earl only half of her earnings, hiding the other half around the house in order to save up for entering the pie contest. Don's one and only online date, Ogie, visits the diner and insists he get to know Don better, kind of in a creepy stalker way, but we'll talk about that more later. Despite her protests, Don realizes they both enjoy American Revolution reenactments and how much they have in common. Jenna makes an appointment with Dr. Palmer, where she impulsively kisses him. Though both are married, they decide to escape their frustrating lives and have sex in his office. It may not be the best idea, but like, you go girl. After her tryst with Dr. Palmer, Jenna discovers Becky and Cal making out at the diner. The married Becky is unashamed of giving in to passion. It is strongly implied that her husband isn't physically capable of fulfilling her sexual needs. Jenna and Dr. Palmer continue their affair, as do Becky and Cal and Dawn and Ogie. Jenna wonders if their affair is a mistake, but Dr. Palmer reassures her. Several months pass and Dawn and Ogie marry. At the reception, Jenna asks if Cal, despite his affair, is truly happy. He responds, that he is happy enough. During a sweet dance scene, Joe, the diner's owner, tells Jenna his sincere hopes for her. Earl drags Jenna home and uncovers the money she has been hiding. She meekly tells him she has been saving for the baby, but Earl leaves with the money. Jenna breaks down, lamenting her long-lost control over her life. Suddenly, she goes into labor. She sees the elderly Joe at the hospital on his way to surgery. Knowing he is dying, he gives her an envelope to open later. Earl, Becky, and Dawn, and even Dr. Palmer's wife, who is a resident at the hospital, crowd the delivery room, and Jenna cries out in distress, giving birth in the darkness. She names her daughter Lulu. Earl reminds her of her promise not to love Lulu more than him, and Jenna finally tells him she wants a divorce. He reacts poorly, and she vows to run him over if she ever sees him again. Dr. Palmer visits Jenna alone in her room, but Jenna refuses his kiss. Saying she doesn't want to remain happy enough, she ends the affair. As thanks for his positive impact on her life, she gives him a moon pie from the vending machine. She claims that homemade is better, but this is all she can do for now. Jenna remarks on her change in outlook with Lulu in her life, as everything has changed. Jenna opens Joe's note to discover that he has left her the diner, asking her to name a pie after him. A few years later, the diner has been rechristened Lulu's Pies, and Jenna, the owner and head chef, is content that her life has finally turned around. To start our final discussion of gender in a Broadway musical ever on this season of Curtain Call, I want to acknowledge the creative team of Waitress. 
And you might be thinking, well, we haven't really talked about the behind the scenes of a musical before. Why are we leaving it till the last episode? And trust me, I really wanted to talk about behind the scenes in a separate episode. But again, time constraints kind of put a kibosh on that real quick. I might do one in the future, but who knows? For right now, I want to talk about Waitress's creative team because Waitress made Broadway history for being the first musical ever to feature an all-female creative team. Yes, you heard that right. It took more than 70 years for an all-female creative team to come about, but Waitress's top creative roles, book, music and lyrics, directing, and choreography, were all filled by women. And since then, we've started to see more female-centered creative teams, such as the creative team behind my current favorite musical, Town. And I know it's crazy to think that it's taken almost a century for an all-female creative team to pop up, but I think it's better late than never. Many critics hoped that with an all-female creative team, the musical would take on a more feminist perspective while also staying true to its source material. And both the musical and the movie deal with the difficult topics of domestic violence and stalking, which are two issues that women are unfortunately very familiar with. It can be tough to accurately portray and discuss these themes on the stage, so many were interested to see how Waitress would go about adapting them. Now, I've always considered Waitress to be a feminist musical. I mean, it's got an all-female creative team, a female-centered cast of characters, but upon closer inspection, I realized with the help of some critics and scholars that it's like so close to being a feminist show, but it just barely misses the mark. And where does it fall short? Well, the musical does a great job of depicting strong female relationships. I mentioned this before. Jenna, Dawn, and Becky seem like the most supportive bunch of gal pals because while they obviously care for one another, they aren't afraid to call each other out on their bullshit either. Rather, the musical ultimately fails to accurately portray domestic violence and stalking, which to me is the most important themes, the ones that critics were trusting the creative team to get right. And our focus today will be on these toxic relationships, starting with domestic violence within Earl and Jenna's relationship. Now, while I was researching for this episode, I saw so many reviews from early productions of Waitress and critiques of the show where writers were saying that Waitress wants surprisingly little to do with the realities of domestic violence and that it actually downplays it to keep the musical light and happy. And you kind of get that feeling when you're watching it. It's kind of like you're watching it through rose-colored glasses where you know it's about domestic violence, but everyone's being so optimistic and like trying to be as positive as they can about their situations that you kind of forget that it's about this toxic relationship. And the movie kind of deals with violence a little more upfront. Earl in the movie is definitely more menacing. We see him physically hit and shove Jenna multiple times. And when she finally orders him out of her life, he doesn't go quietly. Dr. Pometer and a few nurses physically need to drag him out of the delivery room so he doesn't harm Jenna in the baby. In the musical, there is no physical abuse depicted on stage. They really amp up the intense displays of verbal and emotional abuse. Yes, physical abuse is both threatened and suggested, but we aren't seeing it happen directly on stage. We see Earl's controlling behavior more through his words and some of his other actions that aren't physical abuse. For example, in Danielle Fetter's essay, Feminism and Femininity in Broadway's Waitress, she writes, quote, 
Earl takes every dollar that Jenna earns for himself, doesn't allow her to have a car, and makes her promise him she won't love her baby more than she loves him, end quote. So rather than showing physical dominance over Jenna, on stage at least, we don't really know what happens behind the scenes in the story, his other behaviors like not letting her have a car so she can't, you know, leave him, taking all of her money so she doesn't have any financial stability to leave him, those are also abusive. Those are also different ways of controlling his wife. It's just not physical stuff. Now, personally, I believe that you don't need to show physical violence or physical abuse on stage in order for it to actually seem real or like to be depicted as real. But many writers have criticized this depiction of abuse as being quote unquote sanitized or not gritty enough. They're basically arguing, well, you're not seeing Earl hit her. So is it really an accurate portrayal of what women go through? For example, you have Vox writer Aja Romano in her review of Waitress. She calls the musical's portrayal of Earl as a cartoon and buffoonish stereotype. Less Stanley Kowalski, more Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. The result is that scenes where his violence should feel real and menacing seem odd and off-kilter. Jenna's face tells audiences that he can hurt her, but Earl's stilted nonchalance and the pains the show takes to downplay his controlling behavior contradict her. End quote. And this is obviously not the first time we've seen domestic violence portrayed on a Broadway stage. I mean, we literally just talked about the color purple, which deals heavily with the topic. And other famous examples include Julie and Bill's relationship in Carousel, as well as Bill Sykes and Nancy and Oliver. But prior to 2005, the battered women in these relationships get a whole song excusing her lover's violence while justifying her decision to stay with him. And interestingly, it wasn't until The Color Purple opens that a musical addressed domestic violence without also justifying a woman's choice to stay. Throughout even the liveliest musical numbers, The Color Purple maintains its awareness of the abuse its characters face. And instead of having women justify staying in violent relationships, The Color Purple has Mr. and Harpo learn to accept their responsibility for their own violence, which was like a huge step forward. The Color Purple was the first instance where a Broadway show acknowledged the concept that violent men are responsible for their own actions. But Waitress's depiction of Earl seems like a backtrack, like a misstep in progress. It's been over a decade since The Color Purple opened, so why are our male characters, like, regressing? As Romano writes, quote, Earl remains oblivious and obtuse throughout, and the burden of changing her situation is placed entirely on Jenna's shoulders, end quote. Earl doesn't learn anything from this experience. He stays static the whole musical. He doesn't get that redeeming moment like Harpo or Mister. And it's 2016 at the time. Why aren't they including something like that? As I mentioned before, depicting domestic violence on the stage is nothing new. So why does Waitress essentially water down its portrayal, incorrectly representing the struggle of many women trapped in similar situations? Additionally, the show makes it seem like Leaving your abusive partner is so simple. You just tell them one time to leave, scram, skedaddle out of your life, and everything turns out all hunky-dory. When in actuality, most women try to leave their partners multiple times before they're successful, or on a more grim note, are hurt in the process. In her article, Romano references statistics from the Domestic Abuse Shelter, a program based in the Florida Keys that helps victims of domestic violence. 
This nonprofit organization found that, quote, on average, a woman will leave an abusive relationship seven times before she leaves for good, end quote. Additionally, they found that of the total domestic violence homicides, about 75% of the victims were killed as they attempted to leave the relationship or after the relationship had ended. So in addition to watering down Earl's violent side, they're actually misrepresenting how difficult it is to leave an abusive relationship. I didn't plan on talking about this, but I think it's a good little anecdote to include because thankfully I haven't been in an abusive relationship, whether emotionally abusive or physically abusive, but I do have a friend who's kind of currently going through a situation like that, and it's really not easy for them to leave, especially when they've been together for so long. So my friend right now is in a relationship with this girl, and they've been together for a while. She's kind of like Earl in that she isn't physically violent. Her actions are very restrictive and controlling, and I've watched firsthand how hard it is for him to get out of that relationship. Multiple times, it has been at least three or four times where they've gotten into a fight and he tells me that it's the end, And then a few days later, he's like, well, we're going to try again. And I think a large part of it is in the victim's mind. And I know he doesn't like to think of himself as a victim, but in the victim's mind, they're trying to justify leaving. And in the musical, Jenna knows what's going on is wrong. So she knows that and she actually has the extra push to get out so that her child also isn't living in this abusive household. But they're trying to justify in their brains staying. And that's why I think it takes so many times, you know, if we go back to that statistic, It takes them multiple times to leave for good. But I've seen firsthand how difficult it is to get out of a situation like that. And it's not as easy peasy as Waitress the Musical makes it seem, you know? You don't just tell your significant other, I want a divorce, and then you magically get gifted a pie shop and your life is all better. I'm going to leave that anecdote as like our last bit of that section on domestic violence and kind of transition into our next topic of discussion. So while Jenna and Earl's toxic relationship kind of takes center stage, the unhealthy budding relationship between Don and Ogie is kind of overlooked. In the musical, Ogie's overbearing personality initially comes off as slightly creepy, but he ultimately wins both Don and the audience over by the end of his number never getting rid of me. And I will admit that a large part of the appeal to Ogie's character is the actors who portray him. You know, Christopher Fitzgerald, the actor who originated the role, does a great job of making the character's stalkerish tendencies appear lovable and quirky. You know, his quick and comedic timing makes you forget about the somewhat disturbing lyrics he's singing. Audiences generally feel okay about this new relationship in the end because unlike the movie, it actually seems like Dawn does fall in love with Ogie. Uh, Going back to Romano, she points out that in the film, while Ogie is portrayed as ultimately a good man, Dawn directly acknowledges that he kind of wore her down and stalked her into a relationship and she admits that she's only with him because she's settling. Whether or not Ogie's intentions should be viewed as predatory is a hot topic within the theater community, and I've combed through countless discussion boards of waitress fans debating if Fitzgerald's comedic portrayal makes stalking seem acceptable. Personally, I love Ogie, but I will admit that, like, looking at his character closer, I can't help but feel that the musical does kind of downplay his more creepy tendencies. When you first hear the lyrics, quote, 
I will never let you let me leave. I promise I'm not lying. Go ahead, ask anybody who has seen me trying. I'm not going. If it seems like I did, I'm probably waiting outside. End quote. You're kind of taken aback, but then the actor continues to act like this goof, and you're like, oh, well, it it seems like he just cares a lot. You know, you're kind of writing off his behavior as, oh, he's just really a good guy who, you know, doesn't date a lot of people, so he's just overly passionate, you know? And Ogie even describes his own self as just being stubborn or like really passionate. But I don't know about you, I don't really find stalking to be very funny or comedic. And this is nothing against Christopher Fitzgerald. I know that this is just how Ogie is written, but I kind of find it odd that an all-female creative team would make something so serious, so lighthearted, when they should know more than anyone else to be aware of the harsh reality of stalking. Like, I know everybody experiences stalking, men, women, but with an all-female creative team, kind of like the topic of domestic abuse, you're like, why aren't we taking this more seriously? Because I do know that both men and women are affected by stalking obviously but statistics obviously lean more towards women according to the women and gender advocacy center at colorado state university one in six women compared to one in 19 men in the united states have experienced stalking victimization at some point during their life Additionally, their study found that there is a strong link between stalking and other forms of violence in intimate relationships. They found that 81% of women were also physically assaulted, and 31% of women were also sexually assaulted. These other forms of violence can also turn deadly. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence also found that 76% of women murdered by an intimate partner were stalked first. So again, you have to wonder, why is an all-female creative team making this character's stalking funny, you know, when it's obviously not funny, when stalking is a big issue, a scary issue that so many people experience? Up until this episode, I never viewed it as that. I was also part of the audience that, like, righted off Ogie's behavior as just being like, oh, he's just so funny and comedic and he just cares a lot but it's really stalking you know if you're telling someone that you love them after being on a one date with them and that you're not going to leave until you continue to date them in any other situation in life if anyone did that you would immediately send red flags up unlike dawn in the musical who falls in love with him i mean personally i would never continue to date someone if they were telling me that they're never going to stop pursuing me romantically. And to kind of wrap up this conversation, like, what messages are these relationships in Waitress sending to the audience? Is abuse, however mild, you know, as comedic or small, quote-unquote small, as Ogie's intentions are, is abuse erased or forgiven if it becomes part of a love story or if the abuser in question seems non-threatening and this goes for both earl and jenna's relationship and dawn and Oki's relationship you're like what kind of message are we sending about relationships here you're downplaying domestic violence among a married couple and then you're downplaying Oki's stalkerish tendencies and you're kind of forgiving it because it becomes part of their love story like it's okay that Ogie is insistent on dating Dawn because ultimately they fall in love. It kind of makes you question the choices of the creative team. I'm really glad that I focused our last conversation 
of gender in a Broadway musical on toxic relationships in Waitress because as a Waitress fan I have always like I said just viewed it as like a feminist musical because oh you have Jenna who's strong and she's fighting for what she wants and she does so with the help of her female friends and co-workers but I never really considered how inaccurate the portrayal of domestic abuse and stalking is in this musical and I think this is the important part of curtain call in general is taking musicals that we kind of view with rose-colored glasses or view casually and thinking about them on a deeper level because it's only when I start thinking about some of my favorite musicals at a deeper level that I start to realize how problematic they are or I acknowledge some of their shortcomings. I mean, we did that in the last episode of Curtain Call where Rent is one of my favorite musicals, but I had to admit to myself that it's not perfect. Jonathan Larson was not perfect. He did some bad things in that show and it's okay to still enjoy that. But I'm realizing that with Waitress too, where it's like, Waitress is a good show. It's a nice show. I like it. But it wasn't until this episode that I realized how poorly the creative team actually portrayed these issues that are very important in our lives. Sorry to end our last gender and Broadway discussion on kind of a bittersweet note, but I think truly that this was the point of Curtain Call all along is to analyze Broadway shows on a different level to get a better understanding of them and to view Broadway shows going forward in a different light. Well, that's it for this episode, and that's a wrap on this season of Curtain Call. Of all the episodes, which was your favorite musical discussion? I literally don't think I could pick one because I learned something in every single episode. From musicals that I thought I knew really well and knew what I was going to talk about, I learned some really surprising things, and I'm really grateful that I did because now it gave me a new perspective about how I look at shows going forward. I'm really proud of myself for pursuing topics beyond just what's covered in mainstream media. I didn't want to bore you every episode with the same stuff. I didn't want to continue to just talk about, oh, misogyny and the patriarchy and all of these different things. I'm glad that we actually had a variety of conversations. I'm glad that we talked about in this episode gender discrimination within the African-American community, talking about the depiction of the AIDS slash HIV epidemic, talking about the hypersexualization of a real-life female political figure, talking about breaking traditional family and gender roles in the early 1900s, going all the way back to our discussion of Fiddler on the Roof. We covered so much and I'm hopeful that you all have learned as much as I have during this entire process. And I know this is just a one-off technically for a class, but I'm excited to see if this could lead to something more. I think honestly we could do a second season about different shows because there are so many musicals you could talk about. And while other ones don't particularly focus on gender or tie in gender, you could always tie gender into it into a show and I would still love to pursue conversations on behind the scenes that was originally one of my plans was to have a whole episode dedicated to talking about gender discrimination behind the scenes the directors the writers the producers the difference between how many women are costume designers between how many women are in 
uh, lighting or electrical or set building, things of that nature. And I think I did this project at an interesting time in Broadway history because Broadway has been shut down for over a year now. But just recently, there's been news and rumors about producers who are making upcoming Broadway shows that have engaged in inappropriate behavior with their actors or have mistreated their stagehands and things like that. So despite Broadway technically being quiet for a whole year, It's interesting how conversations around gender and Broadway are still coming up, even though shows have been stopped for so long. So I think that proves that there's always going to be a conversation around gender and Broadway shows. There's always going to be a conversation around the characters being depicted, the stories being told, the producers who are making these shows, the differences between who's working behind the scenes, who's being portrayed on the stage, things of that nature. So I think that there is an opportunity for Curtain Call to continue past just this project. I have really enjoyed working on Curtain Call for the last two months. Despite technical issues, despite time constraints, it has definitely taught me a lot about myself, a lot about the Broadway industry. It has definitely taught me more about podcast creation. So it's been beneficial in more ways than just one. And I'm really sad to end this episode. Um, I hope you guys had as much fun as I did in the making of Curtain Call and we will see what happens in the future. I'm sad to say this for the last time in this season, but that's a wrap on today's podcast. I am your host, Jamie Corder, and thank you again for tuning into Curtain Call. Curtain Call is available through the Apple Podcasting app and Spotify. New episodes are uploaded every week. We'll see you next time.